Thanks, Lucy and Brian. Uh, good morning, everyone. Are you enjoying the chairs? Yeah? Yes? I think they're quite comfortable. They're be- I'm actually going to have good posture, I think, after, after seeing these. They make me sit up straight. Um, and you might notice the other thing, the air conditioning. That's working. Praise God, right? Yeah, okay. Well, good morning, and uh, I hope you've been enjoying this series so far. And Let me encourage you as um, that, that there is a different preacher every single service through January. Um, and so if you're ever thinking, hey, I might check out another service and, uh, and, and, and visit it, this is the best month to do it in a lot of ways because you're going to be able to hear something different from another brother or sister that you may not know as well and, and things like that. So I hope you're enjoying the series because, you see, in 2 Timothy verse, um, chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, we read this. It's a very important and well-known text that all Scripture is God-breathed and that it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's a, it's a, a passage in Scripture that says God's Word informs us and it transforms us. The Bible is a book that changes lives. And I'd have to say that it would not be an exaggeration to say that pretty much every single time I prepare a Bible talk, God changes me in some way. God teaches me, rebukes me, corrects me, trains me in righteousness every single time. It's one of the great blessings of actually being a Bible teacher is you get to sit in the Bible so much. Um, But there is a passage that I want to share with you this morning that has had a significant impact on me. And uh, and not not just back when I first reflected, or not just back in the day I remember when this is the way I thought, but it's actually shaped the way that I think about things even up to the present time. And that is the second reading that was given to us then, Ephesians chapter 1. So if you're going to have a book, your Bible's open, which is a good thing, um, please make sure you've got it open to Ephesians chapter 1. So let me take you back to about 1991, I think it was. I was about 20 years old and um, I was about the same age as my son Bailey, who sometimes plays guitar up here, is now. And I was already a follower of Jesus and uh, like many of the 20-year-olds here at Christchurch, because this is a church I also grew up at, I was involved in youth ministry while others were involved in kids' ministry. And, and as a 20-year-old, I, I was starting to grow up a bit. Right, so, so the, the novelties of being a young adult fresh out of school and, wow, you mean they don't care if you turn up or not and, 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 and all of that sort of stuff, especially because I went to a private school and so, wow, they, the, the, really the lids were off. But, um, but I'd started to grow up a little. I'd started to settle down and actually think and mature a bit. And, and many of us had started going to Christian conferences and were thinking about and talking about deeper issues than we tended to talk about when we were younger teenagers. And one of the more hot-button issues that we'd talk about was the doctrines of predestination and election. Now, if you're going, what on earth are they? Put very simply, it's the idea that we don't choose God, that God chooses us. That God is sovereign over absolutely everything and he is even sovereign over the choices that we end up making, in particular our salvation. And a great verse that captures this idea in a nutshell, if you want to see it, it's the one on the screen, it's Romans chapter 8. For those God foreknew, he also predestined, worked out beforehand, predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called 
those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. See, God's activity all the way from way back when, all the way through to glory, right? Now, that raises a lot of issues for a lot of people. Maybe you've wrestled with some of these things. Um, But what about free will? But what about those whom God doesn't choose? Is, Is this fair? And so for some of my friends, they would have debates about, what do you, do you believe in predestination? And they might throw that, those sorts of questions. Well, for me, to be honest, the fact of it was not an issue, really, ever, because it was really clear from passages like Romans 8 that the Bible taught it. You can't wriggle out of that. It's right there. There's no way of getting around what was so explicit in the Scriptures. So it's actually the thing I was wrestling with is trying to understand it. You know, whether or not I acknowledging it to be true was not the point. It was there. So, what does it mean? How do I understand it? But I'll tell you one thing. It did unsettle me. What unsettled me was questions like, well, how do I know if God's chosen me or not? What if I only think I'm a Christian... But the reality is I'm, not, my, I'm not, a, not chosen, right? And so sometime later in my life, I'm destined to chuck things in because I'm not on the list. Now, that gave me the yips a little bit. That was pretty unsettling. It impacted my assurance. And I also couldn't shake the feeling that election predestination somehow depersonalizes everything. Do I mean anything to God? Or am I just a number? Is my salvation just a a stroke of luck, like a a lotto ball being drawn out from the big ball-y thing full of balls? Am I random selection out of the crowd? Not you, not you, not you, yes, you, yes, you, not you, not you, not you, yeah, you, and I happen to be one of them. Had I just randomly dodged eternity's most terrible bullet because my name got chosen by some celestial algorithm. Was my salvation really love, or was it lotto? So I think it was 1991, and it was the beginning of a Tawoon Bay beach mission. Now, uh, for those who've got sharp eyes, um, you might see some, you probably won't, it's a bit too blurry, I took it, you you might see some familiar people, Wendy's brother's there, second, third from the left up the top, Um, uh, there's a a young Bob Fozard in there, Uh, there's Chris Tolmey down the front right, Phil Hirons, anyway, there's, you can look at it later, Um, but uh, it was a Toon Bay beach mission, it was about 1991, now for those who don't know what a beach mission is, it's where you go away um, after Christmas time, beginning of January, with a team to go to camping grounds and caravan parks up and down the coast, and you run Christian programs for kids and youth. Well, I was sitting down late one afternoon during the time that gets set aside every day for team members to sit down and pray and read their Bibles. And I thought it was the first day, and I was thinking, oh, what am I going to look at this week, this beach mission? And so I thought, well, what about Ephesians? Um, I probably did a flick or something like that and went, oh, this one looks about the right length. It's about the right size to get through in a week and a half. And as I sat facing the ocean, and and the next photo is pretty much the view that (laughs) I was looking at, as I sat up facing the ocean, I started with chapter one and we had an hour on this and so I didn't rush it and so I just thought, no, I'm just going to take my time and read through this slowly. 
Now, if you scan over those verses in front of you, you'll see straight away the words predestined and chosen, right, caught my attention. You can't escape them. They're right there in black and white. So I thought, oh, this will be interesting. But the tone of this passage, I noticed, wasn't cool or detached. It wasn't academic or impersonal, but joyful and celebratory. Twelve verses of non-stop praise and adoration. But the verses that jumped out to me when I, re- when I read them really stood out for me were in verses 7 to 9, and in particular it's five words. With all wisdom and understanding. And I remember it just going, boom, out of the pages at me. Let me read to you verses 7 to 9. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ. Now, some commentators put the with all wisdom and understanding bit with the preceding words, okay? So it would be that the, uh, the grace of God has lavished on us, you know, he... Um, um, and some with the words that follow. So he's making known to us the mystery of his will. So in other words, is, is it with all wisdom and understanding that he made known to us the mystery of his will? Or is it with all wisdom and understanding that he lavished his grace upon us? Um, now, the Greek actually can go either way, but I had no idea about Greek back then, and so I couldn't have told you that. But the old NIV goes with the first option, that he's lavished it on, on us with all wisdom and understanding. And the new NIV, the one you've got in front of you, goes with the next one, that it's, um, that it's the mystery of his will. Now, here's the good thing, doesn't matter. It, it, it actually doesn't actually make that much difference because if you actually look about it and think about it, it's saying the same thing. Either way, it's bringing home the fact that to God, he didn't choose me like a lotto ball. I wasn't that. Okay? Either way, wherever you put it. I wasn't some randling, randling, um, random sampling for salvation. I knew it was not my merits that saved me. I knew it wasn't my good deeds or worthiness, but neither was it pointless or impersonal or some kind of strange favouritism for which I should have survivor's guilt. God's decision to show his grace to me was a demonstration of his wisdom, of his understanding, of his perfect knowledge. God chose me very, very deliberately. My salvation, like that of every believer, was part of his eternal plan. There was a point to it. There is a point to me, a purpose. And that made me go, well, I'm going to have another look at this. And this time I'm going to look at this passage with fresh eyes. And by the end of that hour in Tumun Bay, my heart was at peace. In fact, it was full of joy. So let's have a look at Ephesians 1 together now. And I want to briefly show you four things that this passage reveals to us about the God who makes the decisions. First of all, it shows us the heart of the God who is making the choices. So have a look at how the whole passage begins. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now, it's this passage that follows is a passage about how much God has blessed us. 
This is all about his goodness and his blessing. And now have a look at the motivation of God's actions here. In love, he predestined us. It was in accordance with his pleasure. His glorious grace is something that he freely gives us. It's an act of his, his joyous freedom. Again, our redemption is in accordance with the riches of his grace, his unmerited kindness towards us. Grace that he lavished on us. Again, his revealing of his will is in accordance with his good pleasure. You get, you get the picture. God's choosing of people overflows from his astounding love. It is an act of mind-blowing generosity. God, why have you chosen to save me? Because I love you. And it was my pleasure to do so. Any framework that I might have for thinking about predestination or election as somehow being dispassionate or cold could not be further from the truth. That is not what the scriptures were saying about it, quite clearly. Paul is describing God's sovereign grace to us in such a way that we should be um, filled, as we contemplate it, with joyful wonder at his abundant kindness to us. The second thing that features in this passage is the wisdom of God's choosing. God's choosing isn't only loving and kind, it's extremely deliberate. So just look at those words again. He chose us, he predestined us, he has freely given us, he lavished on us, he made known to us, you were included, you were marked. They're all very, very knowing activities on God's part. Every one of those show forethought, attention, activity and planning. Have a look at how the words, are, uh, now the words that I've highlighted in yellow in there. In accordance with his will. Next slide, please. Uh, yep, there we go. In accordance with his will, with all wisdom and understanding, made known his will, purposed in Christ, times reaching fulfilment. In other words, th there was an end point that was already planned, Right? according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Not an algorithm, not random, very, very purposeful. God has a great purpose towards which he is working and those whom God has lovingly chosen are chosen to be part of that great plan. A plan that has a glorious and noble fulfilment. Have a look at verses 9 and 10. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfilment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. We have every spiritual blessing in Christ. We were chosen in him. We are adopted through him. We've been given grace in him redeemed, forgiven in him, included in him, marked in him. That's all in this passage. Jesus, 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 Jesus. And so is it any wonder that God's plan in saving us is ultimately that everything in heaven and on earth might be united in love and worship of his beloved son, our saviour and lord, Jesus Christ. 
I haven't been saved because of my merits, but I have been saved on purpose to be a part of that that God is doing. That I, a redeemed sinner, might actually bring glory to Jesus. Now, there is one other aspect of God's wisdom in doing things the way he has chosen to do it. God's choosing actually ensures and reminds us that there can be no confusion about the means of salvation. It is all God. You know, the interesting reality is that our discomfort at God's sovereignty hints at our own inherent desire to run things ourselves. That's why we feel that. It's actually a natural byproduct of sin that we might balk at or object to God being the one that makes the decisions and not me. Why am I resistant to that? Because I'm in... Uh, Hang on a minute. Heaven forbid that he might actually know more than us. That he might have plans that are greater than us. Despite that, we can't help clinging to the fiction that we're in charge. But what wisdom did we read in Isaiah 55? Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts above your thoughts. And it goes the same with the fairness question, because we smuggle human merit and worthiness into that as well, don't we? Is God fair to choose to save some and not others? Well, often that comes from an underlying assumption that everyone, in some way, deserves saving. Rather than the reality that the Bible shows us about human sin, that because of human, humanity's universal, every single man and woman and child, rebellion against God, everyone, in truth, actually deserves condemnation. But the doctrine of election and predestination actually reinforces salvation is purely by God's grace. Think about it. You see... If God chose me before the creation of the world, if every aspect of my salvation originated with God, was part of his plan, was part of his purpose, and is affected entirely in and through Jesus Christ, what have I done? What have I brought to the table? There is absolutely nothing about me and my own qualities that leads God to save me. You see, in wrestling with predestination election and stuff and the complete sovereignty of God, I was actually really wrestling with something else. And that is the confronting reality of God's grace. That there truly is nothing that I or anyone else can boast out about before God. In fact, in Ephesians 2, Paul's going to go on to remind his readers that we're spiritually dead in our transgressions and sins. And yet God is the one who's made us alive through faith, in Christ through faith. And even that faith, he gives to us. Praise be to God. This is, this is about 
generosity that is amazingly undeserved. You know, John Calvin wrote this in his commentary on Ephesians. So I'll put it up here because it's a brilliant quote in my opinion. Where are the men who dread and avoid the doctrine of predestination as an inextricable labyrinth, who regard it as useless and almost poisonous? No doctrine is more useful, provided it be handled properly and soberly, that is, as Paul does here, when he presents the consideration of the infinite goodness of God and stirs us up to give thanks. This is the true fountain from which we must draw our knowledge of the divine mercy. If men should evade every other argument, election shuts their mouth so that they dare not and cannot claim anything for themselves. And so while God's choosing of us must be the cause of deepest humility before him, it should actually be a source of profound, wonderful comfort. Three things give me great peace here, and I hope they do for you as well. First, the fact that my salvation is God's work and not mine, that he's the one who's done it. Think about that. If God chose me before the creation of the world, if he went, I'm determined, I haven't even made the universe yet, but I know who I'm going to have. If God predestined me to be adopted as an heir of his for eternal life, God's the one doing that, how is that not going to come to fruition? He's planned it for all of eternity. Is it not going to happen? God isn't fickle or flighty or yes, no, maybe, I don't know, maybe I'll think about it. Uh, uh, he's not like that. He doesn't second guess himself. What he's decided he will do. I can actually be at peace because it's God that's making the choices and it's not left to someone as, as flighty and changeable as me. And what is it that God has decided about me and you and every believer in Christ? Get comfort from this. He's going to make you holy and blameless in his sight and nothing is going to stop him doing that. You, holy in the sight of God, blameless in the sight of God. He's decided to make me an heir of eternal life, to redeem me by Jesus' blood and to forgive my sins. God resolved to do that for me before I was born and before my, any mind had even conceived of my existence other than his own. And how secure is that? And third, he has sealed that promise to us by giving us his Holy Spirit. Look there at verse 13 and 14. You also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And when you believed... You are marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. In other words, God's marked us as his own. How do I know God has chosen me? Well, God in his grace enabled me to hear the message of truth in the first place. And then he transformed my heart that I might actually believe it, because I do believe it. And that means I belong to him. That's you. You belong to him. And he is at work in my life by his Holy Spirit, ensuring that I will stand before him and I will enjoy eternal life with him when Christ returns. 
Can you believe that I used to question whether election meant that I was just a number? When part of that election is that God himself has chosen to dwell in me and to walk with me through my entire life and to personally guide me and every one of his people saved alongside of me to the glorious future that he's reserved for us. He's right there with, he's among us now. How personal is that? Well, that takes me to the final thing Ephesians 1 brought home to me and has brought home to me ever since I've read it. And that is what God's gracious choice deserves as a response. And it's in verses 3 and verse 6 and verse 12 and verse 14. Praise. And that praise comes in two forms in Ephesians that we might be to his praise and that we might give him praise. So the first one there, that, that given all that he has done for us, given the riches of his grace towards us in Christ, we might respond in such a way that our very lives will bring praise to God. People will see us, the heavenly realms will see us as redeemed sinners and go, praise be to God. That we might be holy and blameless as God has appointed us to be, that we might live the redeemed and as redeemed and forgiven sinners as God has made us, and that that all might be to the praise of his glory. And of course, having received such love, that we ourselves be filled with joy and give God the praise and thanksgiving for saving us that he deserves. Uh, there's a new hymn that's come out, and I love it. Let me read you one of the verses of it which I think is an expression of what we should be feeling here. What gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness and freedom, my steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. And to this I hold, my hope is only Jesus, for my life is wholly bound to his. Oh, how strange and divine I can sing all is mine, Yet not I, but through Christ in me. Now, not for a moment am I suggesting that this passage answers all the questions that we might be asking as we contemplate God's absolute sovereignty. I'm not claiming that. That's a much bigger talk, which if you've got a whole day, I might try sometime. Um, God's ways are above our ways. His thoughts are above our thoughts. You're never going to be, have a bigger head and bigger mind than God does. Why does something happen to one person and not another person? Why is something happening at this particular time? Why has this happened now? Why is God letting something happen in this particular way? Or in this particular sequence? Those things are locked away in the wisdom of God. And there is a presumption in demanding that God explains his reasons for every action that he does. He's God, we're not, and we've got to remember that. As Calvin also wrote, let human presumption restrain itself and in judging of the succession of events, let it bow before the providence of God. But I tell you what it has done for me. 
I'm able to be at peace with the fact that God is making all of the decisions. You see, knowing the character and knowing the ultimate purpose of the one that makes the choices makes all the difference. He has led us in on what his great plan is. And even if I don't know all of the details of how he's working that plan out, I know that he's working the plan out. Because of Jesus, I know that God's good and I know that he's wise and I know that he's got a purpose and I know that he really loves me. And if this is the character of the God making the choices, that that's something that even I can't, even though if I can't understand the immediate whys of all of the circumstances, I can accept it and even embrace it. I can be at peace because the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is worthy of my and everybody's absolute trust. Uh, let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your great generosity to us in Jesus. Um, and we praise you because you are the mighty God who knows everything about your world. That, that saying that you are the creator reminds us that you are the one who, who planned how you were going to create and what the purpose of that creation was. Help us to, um, as we wrestle with the events of this world and why things happen, Help us to take great peace and comfort from the fact that you are the one who is sovereign over it and you have shown what you are like and what you think of us in the Lord Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.